Hello and welcome to The Slow Reader. I am Stephen and this is my podcast about books that I've read slowly. And this is the year-end episode for 2021. Thank you for joining me. Um, I was hoping to read quite a few more books since the last episode, but uh, I didn't get that far. Uh, but I did read two, well, one full book, one full novel, and uh, probably what I would call a novella, and then also um, a short story by Kurt Vonnegut, um, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit. I think I'm going to, no, hang on, and a short story by Kurt Vonnegut, whose title is a little bit misleading. It's uh, 2BR02B, and I'm going to read that at the end of the episode as a little bonus for you for the end of the year. But uh, first things first, I'm going to get started with the books that I've read. Um, the, the most recent was A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, and then I also finished up Dark Town by Thomas Mullen. And I wrote a full review of that uh, of that book, and I put this on Goodreads. And just a heads up: this is a full spoiler alert review. So if you haven't read the book and were wanting to, this is going to contain some spoilers for you. So I think that's enough warning. So this book was gifted to me about a year ago, and I didn't get to it until recently. Um, however, from the description alone, I thought that this would be an interesting read, primarily because of the combination of being a crime novel and one that would deal with race dynamics and the challenges with a segregated system, let alone a segregated police system. But um, I was wondering if the book would live up to the jacket's promise. Um, in short, yes, but also no. I acknowledge that the main plot, the death of a woman that is the main investigation from the main characters, Boggs and Smith, is a good page-turner and for the most part holds up throughout the novel. We're given several red herrings along the way and the story twists accordingly to make sure that it's not an open and shut case, even though the white police officers would love, uh, love it to stay that way. Uh, the first part of the book also follows a neat structure in that it seems to follow the day-to-day -day shift work from the beat cops, both the, the white and the black officers, and that's pretty much the yes part of it. The also no part rests with the characters. Uh, going back to the structure really quick, the beat cop narrative structure, it gets dropped as Boggs and Smith and, uh, and the white officer Rakestraw to an extent as they begin to investigate the murder in earnest. I was kind of disappointed with this structure being dropped midway through the book because I thought it was an interesting lens to follow the story through, but that aside, I had more problems with the characters, so I'll get back to that. I think that Boggs was the only character that was really fully fleshed out. I mean, as the book goes along, we find out that yes, he is technically a war veteran, but he didn't actually go overseas. He was held back uh, due to his extra enthusiasm to fight, apparently, and he had a miserable time in South Carolina training camps. And he also comes from money. His father is a reverend who is very popular in the community, and he realizes, or he comes to realize, that the world works very much differently than he's been allowed to perceive. And he actually comes close to quitting as a police officer at a few points in the book. 
The rest of the characters come across as your usual caricatures found in race relations media. There's the evil bad cop Dunlow who just hates the black officers and is doing everything he can to get them get them fired. And he also encourages his own kids to take up violence to drive a black man out of a white neighborhood. Uh, Mullen attempts to give him some depth at the end of the novel when he tells a story about how he felt sorry for uh, some prostitutes in a brothel. Br- uh, brothel? Uh, I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. A brothel. Uh, but it really falls flat and doesn't really do much to give dimension to Dunlow. Officer Rakestraw is the progressive officer. Um, thankfully, though, he's not presented as a white savior exactly. And his backstory is a little bit interesting. Um, He's progressive because his grandmother suffered persecution in Germany and encouraged acceptance and tolerance in his family. So at least that part kind of tracks for his progressiveness. But um, despite his willingness to accept the black police officers, he doesn't actually do much to help them. He tells himself he'll stop Dunlow from beating up black people. Uh, He doesn't understand what the black police, police officers actually want. And his reason for helping investigate the women's murder is actually to help separate white cops from black cops and keep them out of each other's business. In the end, Rakestraw is by no means enlightened and just barely respects his black colleagues. So um, I I will give Mullen points for this kind of realism. Uh, That character isn't exactly the best character, even though uh, he thinks he's being honorable and respectful. So that's where I'm also conflicted. By the end of the book, the only real progress is that Boggs decides he'll stay on the force as a police officer. Otherwise, nothing else has really changed at the end of the book. The murder is solved, uh, and more on that in a second, but there's no justice involved. All of these things are realistic and fit with the era in which the novel is set. So I guess I was mostly disappointed by the flat characters. The setting, Atlanta, also seemed to be very important to the book, but then it also wasn't. So the way it was important is because it is very true. The city of Atlanta introduced black police officers in 1948. The attitudes toward black people in the South in the late forties are very relevant. And the contrast between the country and the city are felt here. Uh, There's a feeling of safety felt in Atlanta that is not at all there outside the city limits. And that's very believable and real. But Mullen concentrates on making sure we know exactly how hot it is, but I don't really see how heat comes into play in in the story at all. And that's another point of writing that really bothered me. Uh, Mullen used some really bad metaphors and literary devices to describe how oppressively hot it was, and it took me out of the book. Uh, Here's a couple of quotes. The sun was not taking any prisoners. That's from page 247. And then again later, uh, just another uh, 40 pages later, the sun had a serious agenda that no sane person wanted to get involved with. Uh, so yeah, those that's, uh, that's not exactly the best writing that I've encountered. And But I have to figure that Mullen was trying to emulate the hard-boiled detective stories that he references as books Boggs read as a kid. Um, I don't know, were they supposed to be descriptions from Boggs' point of view? It doesn't seem that way, but um, I don't know. It's it's tough to say. Uh, in other areas, though, the writing was sloppy. I found at least two sections where the narrative cut off just as a character was about to learn something important, and the next section we get a char- we get has a character saying something to the effect of, wow, that was some important information we learned. We better act quickly. Um 
And there was a point where we're also made to think a character was shot in the head. And then soon after, in another chapter, the character is talking freely with another. So, And we don't find out until the next chapter after that one what really happened. Uh, the onomatopoeia of bang was just mouthed by the character pointing the gun at him. And that felt really cheap. And that leads me uh, to the conclusion of the murder investigation. And throughout the whole book, there were so many twists and turns that it felt like it was a complicated story. And every time we learned something new, another layer was added. And as it continues, more and more suspects are eliminated until we find out that it was the congressman's son. That also kind of felt like a cheap ending to me. Uh, We've gone through all sorts of trials and ordeals, and it ended up being a simple, cliched solution. I mean, isn't it always the rich kid who makes a mistake and tries to handle it or cover it up? Uh, Don't get me wrong, though. Uh, I enjoyed the book, despite the flaws that I pointed out. The story was interesting, interesting, and I finished it rather quickly compared to my normal pace of reading, which is slow. Uh, I'll give credit to Thomas Mullen for crafting the book in a way to keep me reading all the way through. I initially thought a three rating was appropriate for the book, but after rethinking everything when I wrote this review, I think two stars makes more sense here. I liked the book, but there were a lot of problems with it for me that I couldn't look past. Um, glancing over my Goodreads reviews most of uh, for this book, I mean, most of them are four or five stars, and I, I hope that's not because... Uh, or I hope that's because the readers are genuinely enjoying the book and not because the book purported to look at racial issues in 1948 Atlanta and they feel obligated to give it a high rating. I don't know if, if that's what's going on, but it's it's also possible that they genuinely, genuinely enjoyed the book. So uh, it's good that there are people out there that really liked it. So I'd say if you're looking for a mystery or crime novel... I don't think you'll be disappointed with this book. There's lots of twists and turns and conspiracies, and it's got a lot packed into 370 pages. And uh, on top of that, I think it could also sit on the historical fiction shelf. So uh, two stars for me, but give it a shot if you're looking for something new and you want mystery and crap. So um, next, what I read is actually quite the opposite in terms of my enjoyment level, I read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, and this was really good, and I would say my only five-star rated fiction story for the year. I think I looked back through my ratings, and I did have a five-star rating, but it was for um, 21 Things You Should Know About the Indian Act. So this is the only fiction story that I've given five stars to. Um, So I tried reading this several years ago. I remember finding it on Project Gutenberg and giving giving it a shot because I wanted to read the story that uh, is adapted so many times over Christmas. But for some reason, I couldn't get through it. So I wanted to read something short and light between books, and I decided to give this another shot. Um, I So there were some passages I couldn't figure out uh, some of the meanings behind, and I think that's just because... Um, different time, different use of language. So I just moved past them. But for the most part, I understood most of the sense of the words and I could sort things out from context. Um, I I have to say that Dickens was on fire with the wordplay and humor, um, but he also had some pretty gruesome descriptions. So um, here, so one example is uh, the children of man, ignorance 
who is a boy and want is a girl. Uh, that was some pretty messed up descriptions there. Uh, but he also had this line in the first section before he sees the ghost. Um, Scrooge says, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. So, uh, so uh, yeah, um, Scrooge really doesn't like Christmas. That's pretty evident there. Um and and in upon reflection, I think uh, one of the most favorite Christmas Carol adaptations is a Muppet Christmas Carol. And upon reflection, I would say Gonzo was a really good choice to portray Dickens as the or uh, the Dickens slash narrator character in in the movie because of the sense of humor. And uh, like I said, there was lots of puns. And I find also I I like that as in like he had a lot of asides in the movie to the audience. And that happens a lot in the book. There's He has kind of a lot of asides to the reader. Uh, one example is just the opening paragraph of the book. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadliest as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. So, uh, yeah, there's talking to the reader throughout the book, but also throwing in some some of his own humor in there. So I thought that was kind of fun. So, as I said, this is a five-star rating for me and probably going to earn itself an annual Christmas time reread. It's very short. I'd say it's probably a novella. There's three parts to it, so I guess... Uh, no, sorry. I guess it would be four parts because there's the the visit from Marley's ghost, ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, and uh, uh, Christmas is still to come. And I, I was wondering about this. How would you shelve this book? Um, is it literary literature, or you could even argue science fiction or fantasy i mean there's time travel involved technically uh because marley's ghost actually tells him that he's going to receive visits from his spirits over or at the stroke of midnight in the next three nights and then when he wakes up it's it's only been uh one evening or one sleep so um it's it's interesting i i think you could probably make an argument for several different bookshelf alignments um and and one note, I will say I'm confused why so many adaptations have him ordering a Christmas goose for uh, for Tiny Tim's family when it's actually a Christmas turkey twice the size of Tiny Tim. So why do they always switch a goose instead of a turkey? I don't know that one. Well, that is it for 2021. Thank you so much for listening uh, this year. I'm going to try to finish. There's a book I'm reading right now. It's a Star Trek Next Generation novel called Hearts and Minds. I'm going to try and finish that this year or early January. But uh, I'm going to be back in January, hopefully early January, maybe mid-January. And I will have a 2022 preview to figure out uh, what I'm going to do looking forward. Uh, looking ahead, though, um, I'm not going to set a reading goal for a number of books to read, and I'll have uh, all I know that I'm planning for sure 
is uh, that I'm going to work through the rest of my to-read shelf. And then I'm planning on a couple of other surprises. And I'm going to try to read some specific genres. So I'll be back in January with a look ahead to 2022. And hopefully uh, I'll have some interesting books for you. Maybe I'll try to read a few extra ones and try to read a little bit faster and kind of defy the name of this podcast, The Slow Reader. Well, thanks again for listening. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at Stephen underscore G. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N underscore G. And coming up at the end of this podcast, I will have a reading of Kurt Vonnegut's 2BR02B. Thanks for listening. So 2BR02B is a short story by Kurt Vonnegut and was originally published in the magazine Worlds of Science Fiction for their January 1962 edition. Uh, And as I said earlier in the show, the title of the story is a little bit misleading. So uh, I'll get right to it here. Everything was perfectly swell. There were no prisons, no slums, no insane, insane asylums, no cripples, no poverty, no wars. All diseases were conquered, so was old age. Death, barring accidents, was an adventure for volunteers. The population of the United States was stabilized at 40 million souls. One bright morning in Chicago, lying in hospital, a man named Edward K. Whaling Jr. waited for his wife to give birth. He was the only man waiting. Not many people were born a day anymore. Whaling was 56, a mere stripling in a population whose average age was 129. X-rays had revealed his, that his wife was going to have triplets. The children would be his first. Young Whaling was hunched in his chair, his head in his hand. He was so rumpled, so still and colorless as to be virtually invisible. His camouflage was perfect since the waiting room had a disorderly and demoralized air, too. Chairs and ashtrays had been moved away from the walls. The floor was paved with spattered drop cloths. The room was being redecorated. It was being redecorated as a memorial to a man who had volunteered to die. A sardonic old, a sardonic old man, about 200 years old, sat on a stepladder, painting a mural he did not like. Back in the days when people aged visibly, his age would have been guessed at 35 or so, Aging had touched him that much before the cure for aging was found. The mural he was working on depicted a very neat garden. Men and women in white, doctors and nurses turned the soil, planted seedlings, sprayed bugs, spread fertilizer. Men and women in purple uniforms pulled up weeds, cut down plants that were old and sickly, raked leaves, carried refuse to trash burners. Never, 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 not even in the medieval Holland nor old Japan, had a garden been more formal, been better tended. Every plant had all the loam, light, water, air, and nourishment it could use. A hospital orderly came down the corridor, singing under his breath a popular song. And and aside, I'm not going to try and sing this. If you don't like my kisses, honey, here's what I will do. I'll go see a girl in, purp- in purple, kiss this sad world toodaloo. If you don't want my lovin', why should I take up all this space? I get off this old planet, let some sweet baby have my place. 
The orderly looked in at the mural and the muralist. Looks so real, he said. I can practically imagine I'm standing in the middle of it. What makes you think you're not in it, said the painter. He gave a satiric smile. It's called the Happy Garden of Life, you know. That's good of Dr. Hitz, said the orderly. He was referring to one of the male figures in white, whose head was a portrait of Dr. Benjamin Hitz, the hospital's chief obstetrician. Hitz was a blindingly handsome man. A lot of faces to still fill in, said the orderly. He meant that the faces of many of the figures in the mural were still blank. All blanks were to be filled with portraits of important people on either the hospital staff or from the Chicago office of the Federal Bureau of Termination. Must be nice to be able to make pictures that look like something, said the orderly. The painter's face curdled with scorn. You think I'm proud of this daub, he said. You think this is my idea of what life really looks like? What's your idea of what life looks like, said the orderly. The painter gestured at a foul drop cloth. There's a good picture of it, he said. Frame that, and you'll have a picture of a damn sight more honest than this one. You're a gloomy old duck, aren't you, said the orderly. Is that a crime, said the painter. The orderly shrugged. If you don't like it here, Grandpa, he said, and he finished the thought with the trick telephone number that people who didn't want to live anymore were supposed to call. The zero in the telephone number he pronounced not. The number was to be or not to be. It was the telephone number of an institution whose fanciful sobriquets included Automat, Birdland, Cannery, Catbox, DeLouser, Easy Go, Goodbye Mother, Happy Hooligan, Kiss Me Quick, Lucky Pierre, Sheep Dip, Warring Blender, Weep No More, and Why Worry. To Be or Not To Be was the telephone number of the municipal gas chambers of the Federal Bureau of Termination. The painter thumbed his nose at the orderly. When I decide it's time to go, he said, it won't be at the sheep dip. Do it yourself, Ray, said the orderly. Messy business, Grandpa. Why don't you have a little consideration for the people who have to clean up after you? The painter expressed with an obscenity his lack of concern for the tribulations of his survivors. The world could do with a good deal more mess if you ask me, he said. The orderly laughed and moved on. Wailing, the waiting father mumbled something without raising his head. Then he fell silent again. A coarse, formidable woman strode into the waiting room on spike heels. Her shoes, stockings, trench coat, bag, and overseas cap were all purple. The purple the painter called the color of grapes on Judgment Day. The medallion on her purple musette bag was the seal of the service division of the Federal Bureau of Termination, an eagle perched on a turnstile. The woman had a lot of facial hair, an unmistakable mustache, in fact. A curious thing about gas chamber hostesses was that, no matter how lovely and feminine they were when recruited, they all sprouted mustaches within five years or so. Is this where I'm supposed to come? She said to the painter. A lot would depend on what your business was, he said. You aren't about to have a baby, are you? They told me I was supposed to pose for some picture, she said. My name, my name is Leora Duncan, she waited. And you dunk people, he said. What? She said. Skip it, he said. That sure is a beautiful picture, she said. Looks just like heaven or something. Or something, said the painter. He took a list of names from his smock pocket. Duncan, 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 he said, scanning the list. Yes, here you are. You're entitled to be immortalized. See any faceless body here you'd like me to stick your head on? We've got a few choice ones left. She studied the mural bleakly. 
Geez, she said, they're all the same to me. I don't know anything about art. A body's a body, eh? He said, Alrighty, as a master of fine art, I recommend this body here. He indicated a faceless figure of a woman who was carrying dried stalks to a trash burner. Well, said Leora Duncan, that's more of the disposal people, isn't it? I mean, I'm in service. I don't do any disposing. The painter clapped his hands in mock delight. You say you don't know anything about art, and then you prove in the next breath that you know more about it than I do. Of course, the sheave carrier is wrong for a hostess. A snipper, a pruner, that's more your line. He pointed to a figure in purple who was wearing a dead branch, who was sawing a dead branch from an apple tree. How about her, he said. You like her at all? Gosh, she said, and she blushed and became humble. That that puts me right next to Dr. Hitz. That upsets you, he said. Good gravy, no, she said. It's it's just an honor. Ah, you you admire him, eh? He said. Who doesn't admire him, she said, worshipping the portrait of Hitz. It was the portrait of a tanned, white-haired, omnipotent Zeus, 240 years old. Who doesn't admire him, she said again. He was responsible for setting up the very first gas chamber in Chicago. Nothing would please me more, said the painter, than to put you next to him for all time. Sawing off a limb, that strikes you as appropriate? That is kind of like what I do, she said. She was demure about what she did. What she did was make people comfortable while she killed them. And while Leora Duncan was posing for her portrait into the wait, into the waiting room bounded, <laughs> and while Leora Duncan was posing for her portrait into the waiting room bounded Doctor Hitz himself. He was seven feet tall, and he boomed with importance, accomplishments, and the joy of living. Well, Miss Duncan, Miss Duncan, he said, and he made a joke. What are you doing here, he said. This isn't where the people leave. This is where they come in. We're going to be in the same picture together, she said shyly. Good, said Dr. Hitz heartily. And say, isn't that some picture? I sure am honored to be in it with you, she said. Let me tell you, he said. I'm honored to be in it with you. Without women like you, this wonderful world we've got wouldn't be possible. He saluted her and moved toward the door that led to the delivery rooms. Guess what was just born, he said. I can't, she said. Triplets, he said. Triplets, she said. She was exclaiming over the legal implication of triplets. The law said that no newborn child could survive unless the parents of the child could find someone who would volunteer to die. Triplets, if they were all to live, called for three volunteers. Do the parents have three volunteers, said Leora Duncan? Last I heard, said Dr. Hitz, they had one and were trying to scrape another two up. I don't think they made it, she said. Nobody made three appointments with us. Nothing but singles going through today, unless someone called in after I left. What's the name? Wailing, said the waiting father, sitting up, red-eyed and frowsy. Edward K. Wailing Jr. is the name of the happy father-to-be. He raised his right hand, looked at a spot on the wall, and gave a hoarsely wretched chuckle. Present, he said. Oh, Mr. Wailing, said Dr. Hitz. I didn't see you. The invisible man, said Wailing. They just phoned me that your triplets have been born, said Dr. Hitz. They're all fine, and so is the mother. I'm on my way in to see them now. Hooray, said Wailing emptily. You don't sound very happy, said Dr. Hitz. What man in my shoes wouldn't be happy, said Wailing. He gestured with his hands to symbolize carefree simplicity. All I have to do is pick out which one of the triplets is going to live... 
then deliver my maternal grandfather to the happy hooligan and come back here with a receipt. Dr. Hitz became rather severe with Wailing towered over him. You don't believe in population control, Mr. Wailing, he said. I think it's perfectly keen, said Wailing tautly. Would you like to go back to the good old days when the population of Earth was 20 billion, about to become 40 billion, then 80 billion, then 160 billion? Do you know what a drupelet is, Mr. Wailing, said Hitz. Nope, said Wailing sulkily. A drupelet, Mr. Wailing, is one of the little knobs, one of the little pulpy grains of a blackberry, said Dr. Hitz. Without population control, human beings would now be packed on the surface of this old planet like droplets on a blackberry. Think of it! Wailing continued to stare at the same spot on the wall. In the year 2000, said Dr. Hitz, before scientists stepped in and laid down the law, there wasn't even enough drinking water to go around and nothing to eat but seaweed. And still, people insisted on their right to reproduce like jackrabbits. And their right, if possible, to live forever. I want those kids, said Wailing quietly. I want all three of them. Of course you do, said Dr. Hitz. That's only human. I don't want my grandfather to die either, said Wailing. Nobody's really happy about taking a close relative to the catpox, said Dr. Hitz gently, sympathetically. I wish people wouldn't call it that, said Leora Duncan. What? said Dr. Hitz. I wish people wouldn't call it the catbox and things like that, she said. It gives people the wrong impression. You're absolutely right, doc, said Dr. Hitz. Forgive me, he corrected himself. Gave the municipal gas changers their official title, a title no one ever used in conversation. I should have said, ethical suicide studios, he said. That sounds so much better, said Leora Duncan. This child of yours, whichever one you decide to keep, Mr. Whaling, said Dr. Hitz, he or she is going to live on a happy, roomy, clean, rich planet thanks to population control. And a garden like that mural there, he shook his head. Two centuries ago, when I was a young man, it was a hell that nobody thought could last another 20 years. Now, centuries of peace and plenty stretch before us as far as the imagination cares to travel. He smiled luminously. The smile faded as he saw that Wailing had just drawn a revolver. Wailing shot Dr. Hitz dead. There's room for one more, great big one, he said. And then he shot Leora Duncan. It's only death, he said to her as she fell. There, room for two. And then he shot himself, making room for all three of his children. Nobody came running. Nobody seemingly heard the shots. The painter sat on, on the top of his stepladder, looking down reflectively on the sorry scene. The painter pondered the mournful puzzle of life demanding to be born, and, once born, demanding to be fruitful, to multiply and to live as long as possible, to do all that on a very small planet that would have to last forever. All the answers that the painter could think of were grim, even grimmer, surely, than a catbox, a holly ho happy hooligan, an easy go. He thought of war, he thought of plague, he thought of starvation. He knew that he would never paint again. He let his paintbrush fall to the drop cloths below. And then he decided he had had about enough of life in the happy garden of life, too, and he came slowly down the ladder. He took Wailing's pistol, really intending to shoot himself. But he didn't have the nerve. And then he saw the telephone booth in the corner of the room. He went to, di he went to it, dialed the well-remembered number, remembered number, to be or not to be. Federal Bureau of Termination, said the very warm voice of a hostess. How soon could I get an appointment, he said. He asked, 
speaking very carefully. We could probably fit you in late this afternoon, sir, she said. Might be, might even be earlier if we get a cancellation. All right, said the painter. Fit me in, if you please. And he gave her his name, spelling it out. Thank you, sir, said the hostess. Your city thanks you. Your country thanks you. Your planet thanks you. But the deepest thanks of all is from future generations. The end. 